1: Well, hello, hello. It's time for the nose at the end of a very long and indubitably stressful week in the middle of an indubitably stressful season in the middle of an indubitably stressful time in the history of America. And yet still, we do the nose, we talk about culture because culture is part of this whole equation. And here to do that today, dog just will walk right through all of the equipment. Um, here to do that today is Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. As am I, actually. Uh, and Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. He's joining us via the miracle of Skype. Uh, so um, we're going to talk a little bit later about um, a movie, an independent movie, a very, very indie movie uh, that's on uh, Amazon Prime right now called The Vast of Night. Uh, and we'll also talk in just a little while about the, uh, the, the way in which Sarah Cooper Uh, whose main comedic gig these days, although she's done lots of other things, but um, whose main comedic claim to fame right now is just this kind of very unusual lip-syncing of President Trump's various semi-coherent and fully incoherent remarks. Uh, And there's something very, very mesmerizing and very, very funny about this. So we'll talk about that too. We're going to begin with a piece by Alyssa Rosenberg, a cultural critic for The Washington Post. She's actually been on this show in the past. Uh, The headline is, Shut Down All Police Movies And TV shows now. Uh, And what she basically says is if Hollywood is really concerned uh, about the problem of police violence that has convulsed America over the last uh, seven to ten days, what they can do uh, is stop telling stories that whitewash police shootings uh, or valorizing an action hero style of policing. Uh, They should just, for the moment anyway, stop making any of these things, uh, I think, until they figure out uh, how to do it better. There are always gaps between reality and fiction, she writes. But given what policing in America has too often become, Hollywood's version of it looks less like fantasy and more like complicity. So let's begin there. Um, So, Mercy Quay, I'll let you get started, get us started here. How did this argument land with you?
0: Oh, I'm completely in favor of this. I and I don't think that it. Um, I don't think that it comes as a surprise to anyone. But here's my caveat: I would say let's stop producing them and let this moment stand as the point in history. Right. So let's not take down. On, <laughs> I mean, and to some degree, let's not let's not remove from circulation some of the cop procedurals that we've all. Um, uh, uh sort of grown up with or gotten used to and I'm only saying this because I'm biased because Benson and stabler from Lauren Order SVU are probably um, my spirit animals but I think that moving forward in our in our time in our history right now the police departments across the country are getting access to public relations at at no cost. Right, and I mean there are. I I try to think about you know other professions that have um, the same amount of you know public perception that police departments do, and try to see you know do we have we in some way create honored them with you know a vast history of of rich content in um, TV, and the answer is kind of no, right like we come into contact with tow truck drivers (laughs) a few times in life and we hate being towed. Right. And I'm sort of trivializing most people's interaction with cops to that degree, but people hate being towed. Right. And, and we don't see any, any TV that, that highlights tow truck drivers in the same way. (laughs) And sometimes, sometimes, right. Being towed is the worst thing that can happen to you that week or that month, (laughs) depending on who you are, particularly if you are, a low-income person. And so I just don't see any other professional being, profession, um, profession uh, in our in our country being honored in TV in the same way.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not persuaded by Rosenberg's argument, but uh, Mr. Slattery, I'd like to hear from you.
2: I, I suspect I'm probably in the middle of the two of you.
1: Um, there's a...
2: I, I, I couldn't help, like, when, when I was reading the article, thinking that this is really about Law and & Order and its various spinoffs, um, which is the sort of show that I feel like I, I've only watched, like, in hotel rooms. <laughs> and then, and I, you know, when I'm bored. Uh, the, the, I think that, like, the complaint has a deeper question underneath it about how much violence is glorified in the media overall, and the way they were sort of encouraged to root for it um i you know marvel comics universe i'm looking at you um but there's i uh, when i was reading the article i did think about the police procedurals that i would save you know like like the wire came immediately to mind as as a show that very quickly and deftly avoids a lot of the problems that she rightfully brings up um and I think that there are enough positive examples of how police procedurals can be done well that like you know i'm i'm on I'm all in favor of the the entertainment culture changing in response to the current times and figuring out new and interesting stories to tell uh, and I, like that would be super refreshing. and I think that you know if if that's motivated by a concern you know for for moving on from the past and addressing what's going on, then, then great. You know, there's inspiration can be taken in all kinds of ways and made into something positive.
0: I think yeah. about this generation's The Wire though. And if, if I would have to, to compare it to something, it would be the, um, it would be Shy produced by Lena Waithe, um, um with a lot of up and coming um, actors in it. And mm. part of the reason I think a show like that works today is the cops aren't central in the storyline, right? You can tell cop stories. You can tell stories about cops without them being cop stories, right? And I think what Lena wait does in Shy is she tells this amazing, in the same way that The Wire does, she tells this, this elaborate story about Chicago with all these characters and how they are connected through, through, you know, several degrees of separation. And there's a cop in the middle of it trying to solve, Um, a murder. um, And he's sort of connected to everyone in some kind of way, right? There's, there's a story Mm -hmm. about a cop in her story, but cops are by no means centered. And I think that's what the piece, the Washington Post piece is getting at, that more than anything, the problem with the way that we have um, valorized um, cops in TV is it's sort of like, it's just not an accurate representation of what police work is in this country. Right. I think that, mm. you know, the point that she gets to here that stands out um most specifically to me is what if, you know, special victims unit actually only talked about how they solve thirty-three percent of rape cases, right? Or that most, yeah, most yeah. murders and manslaughter, right? Something like forty percent of most of um of murders and manslaughters go without a suspect being arrested at all something like 40 percent right and so yes the biggest issue is that this is a huge um you know police are a- accessing uh an, an amazing public relations tool without any any having to pay for it at all and it's just not an accurate percent uh, uh uh representation of what is really happening
1: you know i, I mean I, I just want to go back in time a little bit and say first of all i would argue. First of all, I, th- I think it's kind of important to separate movies from television. Television, my axiom is television is how we process life, you know, typically, uh, and movies are more like dreams and dreams about uh, either either bad dreams or good dreams. But there, and this that distinction has been blurred here in the era of peak TV. I would agree, but so a, a lot of police shows are to a certain degree workplace dramas just in the same sense that Star Star Trek is much of the time a workplace drama and and I would go back to Hill Street Blues which started in the early 1980s and which uh, you know, there are books written about it now, and there are ways in which they didn't get it right, or they, they leaned a little bit too hard on certain ideas. But there was this rigorous and almost ceaseless uh, exploration uh, of race racial dynamics, both between the police and the citizenry, and also within the police department. There were two interracial police partnerships. One in particular a kind of a, became kind of a famous one, uh, a black uh, officer named Bobby Hill and his partner, a guy named Renko, who was kind of a redneck well not kind of redneck he's a real redneck Uh, and and you know so much of the series was them trying to talk through the different ways that they perceived reality and there was also this tremendous you know very fraught bromance between the two of them but really I'm not sure that I saw anything in the 1980s that dealt with race and and with these very complicated dynamics as on as nuanced and successful a basis as Hill Street Blues did. So I sort of feel like, you know, I mean, yeah, we want we want good television. And I take your point. It would be good. Hill Street Blues also was very good, uh, Mercy, to your point, about occasionally illustrating the futility uh, of police <laughs> efforts, how they don't work, you know, how ideas become unsuccessful. I would also add, and remember, this is the early 1980s. There was a character on the show, I believe his name was Howard, and he ran this kind of paramilitary division of this urban police department, where he was constantly getting uh, equipment and ordnance transferred out of the military uh, into this domestic police department and then radically misusing it to worsen situations. I mean, this lesson, which we think of as a pretty recent lesson, was a very actively taught lesson uh, of militarization in the early 1980s. So you know, I think just good police show. <laughs> but not no police shows anyway somebody take it well mercy i wanted you to make sure that you talk i mean one of the things in the article that she talks about also is cops which is supposedly i guess not a fictional tv show but that might get into the public relations thing you were talking about
0: oh absolutely right so you know cop started in uh 1989 and is it sort of takes off at the, you know, um, height of the war on drugs. And, you know, Vox did a piece on it that I, I, I watched and effectively what I learned from this, and this is, this is news to me, but as a public relations professional now, it's, it's really interesting. Fox took on, and they were like Fox cable news, Fox took on cops um, in, uh, in 1989 and used it as a way to go into um, city after city throughout the country Usually, after they had some kind of of um, you know uh, run in with bad publicity, some kind, you know four four officers have been arrested for excessive force, um, that sort of thing. And you know the the one that sticks out to me is cops L.A., where mm-hmm. the year after the Rodney King beating, the 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 chief in L.A. invites cops out. To cover the station puts out a statement that says, you know, the pol- the police department, in particular, since the um, the Rodney King situation, could use some good press, right? And so, cops has been cops is now the running the longest running series on TV, and you know, um, sw- has switched stations a few times, and there's been a few shows that are derivative of it. But the reality is, I, I do think that what we're getting access to is just not an honest representation of what is happening, and that's the biggest issue. I mean, that's that's part of what
2: I think, and it's starting to feel kind of like propaganda. The The interesting thing about, like, you know, trying to make an accurate representation, though, and it's, it's not that it, sh- it can't or shouldn't be done, but that... You know, the, I think that the, the reality of most jobs, police included, is that they're kind of boring to watch. <laughs> you know, it's like right. you have to find right. a way to make it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you had like I think most people's even like a regular like a cop's regular workday of like, you know, I did my beat and I talked to some people in the neighborhood. But like nothing really happened, <laughs> you know, like that day to day stuff that makes it accurate is also it makes it kind of uninteresting from a dramatical perspective. And it's,
0: I mean, you know, like
2: that's that's a tough one, you know, like, and it's, I mean, I would I would love a kind of police procedural where you dwell on the kind of like the loose ends and the tattered remains of cases that you can't solve and all of that. But I imagine that there's a, I'd be in the a very small group of people who would be interested in this kind of, you know, existential life is meaningless cop procedural. (laughs) And I
0: think that if that's the direction we moved in, then the public would sort of. Uh, 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 vote with their eyes in that regard, right? It's not yeah. interesting. So t- if what's truthful isn't interesting, take it off TV, right? As particularly yeah. if, if, and I don't, and, and that's not a rule that I mean broadly, right? Some what's what's on what's honest is often not interesting, and, and it doesn't make for um, uh, you know great TV. But in this case, I think the damage is outweighing the the need for drama. Um, oh, for sure. Partic- particularly when you're thinking about right. So most doctors. The work of most doctors on a day to day basis is not interesting. But House is a really interesting show and the good doctors yeah, are yeah. Really interesting. No, show. exactly.
2: I mean you, you can crack the code. I mean I, I feel like the way the wire did it was by figuring out that the politics within the police department were a wonderful source of drama. You know, right. like when no. in doubt, just explore the tensions within the police department, which are in very intense and are and do play out in a day to day way. And in their case made for like extremely compelling TV.
1: But uh, just to, just to be clear about this. House, for example, if it were to hew to the kind of standards that we're setting up here, would be mostly about people being turned down for coverage, right? It would be House would figure out some <laughs> right. kind of medicine that they needed and it wouldn't be covered by their insurance. You know, that there's a lot, yeah. a lot of ways in which medicine is hyper corporatized, uh, over controlled by profit margins, uh, and, and in all those ways that we've seen illustrated in nonfiction books about the healthcare system, completely dysfunctional. And House mostly tells, shows you, a pretty high functioning healthcare system. So, I mean, if we're going to cue to this model, you know, we're going to show a lot of failure all over the place, and I'm not necessarily opposed to that. But I, I mercy, I do wonder if there's a distinction. I mean, yes, you can sort of say that every time you show a good, heroic, noble, ethical, truth-seeking cop, you're valorizing police work and you're participating in in a kind of public relations campaign. But if you don't show those cops, and if you don't show them frequently in opposition to bad cops, which happens with some frequency on some of these shows, then mm. you know what what is there to model what is there to dream about i mean don't we have to hope and believe that there are going to be doctors like house and cops like jesse green on law and order or i don't know what his character is called yeah but, uh, I,
0: I, I mean i think that comes that depends on if you come from a school of thought that police are necessary i think when you're thinking about communities who are over policed and we're thinking about communities who who don't think cops are necessary in 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 their communities. Um, defund you don't need an example of what a good cop could be because you don't want cops right you the cries right now coming out of protests aren't you know reform policing they're defund police departments and so having a good representation having a good example of what um police work can be is one thing if what you're saying if what you believe is community policing is the answer and a lot of people just don't
1: yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that the, the a lot of people is still like a single digit number in polling. I, I don't think that there's any substantial sentiment in America to completely defund policing. I yeah, mean, no,
0: absolutely. But I would also say that it, 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 as a single digit number in polling for the broad, uh, the general public in America, the black community, it's really high. Yeah. I would assume.
1: Um, alright, so we are going to just switch gears here, uh, from, um, uh, to something maybe less troubling, I don't know, at least it, uh, something that makes us laugh, Sarah Cooper, who's been around for a while, and I actually discovered um, a kind of a web series she had called The Bubble uh, today, but most people discovered her on TikTok and Twitter and other social media. Uh, she has this specialty, which we unfortunately cannot illustrate on the radio, no matter what we try to do. What she basically does is takes some of the more prom- problematic or wandering or wacky speech patterns uh, of President Trump. She lip-syncs them. She has has, I will say in advance, a highly expressive face. And I went back and I looked at this series, The Bubble, and it was clear even then in 2017, I think she was making it, that she, she just has that gift of using her eyes and using just wrinkles and, uh, of, her, uh, of her lips or something just to you know, get this tremendous comic effect. But for some reason or other, Brian Slattery, these things, and they have elicited, elicited nothing short of worship from Jerry Seinfeld level uh, comedians who are just on there saying, "Keep going, keep going. This is great. This is amazing." But what is she doing? It can't. It can't just be that she's lip syncing Donald Trump. Or as you've suggested in the emails, maybe that is part of the fact that she's just doing that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that like the the genius of it is is I mean, mo- usually the mode for satire is to sort of exaggerate certain things about your subject. In order to bring out what you think is, you know, particularly worthy of ridicule, or you want people to examine it more closely, so you magnify it. Um, I think that like her genius here is that she's figured out that like Trump is already as magnified as he can possibly be, and the way to do it is actually to put his words and his cadences in a much more normal context. Like, I think it's pretty important that she's kind of like she seems to be like in wherever she lives or she's like in a restaurant or she seems to be like possibly she's in an office and it makes you realize that if a normal person were talking to you this way that it would just be like really weird it would be you know it'd it'd be kind of alienating and you'd be thinking like i it occurred to me like if somebody i didn't know were to approach me and start talking this way i would be looking for like my exit strategy from this
1: conversation you know, you're
2: like, how do I, how do I get out of this? <laughs> you know, how do I get out of this gracefully?
1: Well, I think, I think we are. Just just to butt in for a second, we are <laughs> looking yeah. for an exit <laughs> strategy, wondering how <laughs> we get out of this. But Don't anyway, get me can,
2: wrong. Can, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Continue your thought, but, though.
2: But, you know, the other – and then – but, you know, if I were to lip-sync Trump's words, it wouldn't be that interesting. I mean, I think she does have that sort of, like, silent movie actor's – gift. Like my favorite moment is one where there's a long pause and, you know, in between phrases as Trump struggles to come up with the next word. And she pretends to like nod off (laughs) in this like, it's maybe a second and a half, but she manages to like convincingly almost nod off between the two words. And I just thought like, that's perfect. You know, it's like the the embodiment of what's going on, you know, internally almost, you know, where you go like, right. It's not that he's trying to find the next word. It's that he's losing interest.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, Mercy, I wonder if part of it is that she looks like somebody we might know. I mean, we're not going to know anybody with hair like Donald Trump who dresses like Donald Mm -hmm. Trump and intones the way he does. Uh, But she sort of looks like somebody, you know, that you might know. And is that part of There's sort of an uncanniness about it.
0: Yeah, I think I I think that's what makes her so relatable and actually what adds to um, her going viral um, with with uh, these lip sync videos. Um, Most people, um, you know, I share when I. Interacted with her TikTok for the first time. And I even did like a quick poll um, uh, of, of uh, my Instagram followers. This is like, do you know who this is? <laughs> Are you familiar with this person? And a lot of people don't even know that she sort of made her, she, I mean, you know, she made her big break years ago. I think what she's honed into here is, you know, there's a through line from her um, 2016 book, How to Appear Smart in Meetings. And for me, there's a, there's yeah. a, a the through line looks like, you know, honing in on what is either laughable or, or you know, ridiculous or peculiar about real life um, and and um, putting that on a stage is what, I, what I'm what i seeing that she's doing. Straight from how to appear smart to these TikTok um, lip syncs, she has been able to really highlight how Donald Trump is laughable in any context. <laughs> and, and I think... I think you know, she's did, she's done that in her earlier books, what's laughable in the meetings and corporate America, what's laughable and ridiculous about those things. And I think it's working really well when you um, apply that lens to to Donald Trump. What I'm interested in seeing, though, is, right, like, where does this go for her after Donald Trump is no longer the, right, how do, what, what's next? Who's the next character that you get to highlight and lip sync to?
1: Right this I don't know I there's a really great question and and I feel like the answer might be this could be a kind of a sui generous thing, and she'll just go on to do other stuff. But right. I mean, Brian, I, I thought the point that you made in the emails and you kind of made it just now too, is that that usually impersonation. Uh, and satirization of a particular person and put per- that person's voice and mannerisms involves an exaggerated stretch somehow Jimmy Cagney didn't really talk the way that people who imitate him talk <laughs> you know and then eventually everybody thought that George HW Bush talked the way that Dana Carvey did him which was not true really Dana Carvey just sort of figured out you know some things about him that could be played up into this interesting parody but with Trump well, I mean, you should explain it, but there's a way in which exaggerating his 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 characteristics is it doesn't work.
2: Yeah, I mean there's I, it, you know, he just comes across as somebody who has worked harder on his public persona than possibly like any other aspect of his personality. You know, and, like and there's a, there's a point now where like now the imaging of it is I mean, you know, look like I I can't imagine too many people who are aesthetically removed from what I like than him, but there's no doubt that he's kind of worked it all out. Like he's got like the man loves like white and gold plated things. And it's just like the amount of time he spends on his hair. Like all of these things are like, well, you know, that's where his attention goes. And meanwhile what's been left behind is you know how to speak (laughs) and how to how to get from one thought to the next you know in in some kind of logical way and when you take out all of the when you take out all of the imaging the very well thought out imaging that's associated with it and you're left with the words you realize how how it it, you know they, they come across like I want to say it's like a hamster like running in a wheel except that he's not always running. You know, it's like he stops and starts and you know maybe he goes and like gets a snack and then comes back to the wheel. You know, it's it's you know, it's this very like erratic thing. And as soon as you take away all the imaging associated with it you you really see how erratic it all is without having to uh, do anything
1: with it <laughs> right. it's more like a hamster golfing actually uh, all right so we have to uh we have to take a break here we'll be back we're going to tell you about a movie that we've all watched after this because your mind is on
0: vacation and your mouth is working all time you quoting figures and dropping names you're telling stories about all them dames You overlapping when things ain't funny. You trying to sound like you big, big money. And talk was criminal.
1: So, uh, The Vast of Night. Well, first of all, let me reintroduce the panel. Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project, and, a, and, and on a bull, billboard recently, too, uh, <laughs> and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group, uh, Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. Uh, and The Vast of Night is the first, first feature film by writer and director Andrew Patterson, I am told by producer Jonathan McNichol that he financed it with money, his own money that he earned making commercials for the Oklahoma City Thunder, among other clients. It was shot actually in the fall of 2016. Um, it is a movie that takes place in New Mexico in the 1950s. Uh, has a, a, Well, we'll talk about what, what the feeling of it is. But So, Mercy, I, I know a little bit more about what Brian thinks than I do about what you think about this movie, although... Uh, given your fondness for outer space and the night sky, uh, I assume we're somewhere in your ballpark.
0: Oh, this is, a, yeah, no, uh, this is somewhere in my ballpark, but uh, sort of like left field. I want to be clear about that. Um, Uf, how do you say this, Brian? Is it ufology?
2: Ufology,
0: yeah. Yeah, ufology, I think, you know, last of, of um, astrophysics and I, I'd like to I'd like to think that I'm more um, situated among the um, the uh, the cult group of uh, astrophysics fans um, but that said this was really entertaining to me for a couple reasons it was entertaining to me because it had the very sort of dry slow drawl that a lot of the Twilight, um, uh, uh, the the Twilight series or um, the X-Files, The Blob, um, or even like um, uh, the case of the Body Snatchers type films had, and that felt really nostalgic to me. Um, I also, what was interesting about it, finding out that it was produced for less than a million <laughs> made me really appreciate the quality of the film. I, I mean, I remember in the early 2000s and the 90s, a, mili- a, a low-budget film would... Looked like a low-budget film, and that just at all, that was not what we got from um, The Vast of Night. Um, There are a couple things that I wanted to see here. Um, obviously, I wanted to see far more space. McPants mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, <laughs> and I got into an uh, an exchange where he tried to convince me this was not a movie about space, and I was like, "Nope, nope, nope. Yep, movie about space. Great, huge movie about space. Got it. Looking forward to it." <laughs> and um, I go, I went into it knowing that it wasn't, but hoping that there was a grain of it. And this this isn't a movie about space, and everyone should know McPants was right. I'll get it on a T-shirt. McPants was right. Um, and even so, I would still endorse it for some, some easy viewing.
1: All right, so before we hear from Mr. Slattery about this, let's hear a little bit from the film. The film stars some of your favorite performers, Sierra McCormick, Jake Horowitz, Gail Cronauer. Yeah, no, I know. You've never heard any of these people. Neither have I. That's some of the joy of a movie like this one, because the performances actually are pretty, pretty interesting. Anyway, here's Jake Horowitz as Everett Sloan. He's the late night, overnight DJ on, on WOTW, uh, which is a, a radio station in one of those tiny little box type buildings in a little town in New Mexico. And Sierra McCormick, a young woman uh, who has a part time job. She's Faye Crocker. She has a part time job as an overnight telephone operator it is they two the two of them who get swept up in a drama that almost nobody else knows about because they're all at a big high school basketball game cat
2: this is WOTW Everett the Maverick Everett it's Faye I'm
0: sorry please don't be mad at me Uh, Faye
2: I thought you were a caller
0: I know I'm sorry I knew you'd think that please don't be mad What about the tape recorder no a sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show um i don't know it's just it's never come through over here you said it? something interrupted my show yeah through the radio what it sound like well, i don't know i can connect you through did it, it sound matter. mexican no it didn't sound mexican it, because we cross signals with the station in mexico it sounded like something that could be unsafe because we had this lady well why how? nothing sounded different over here how long ago was it right at the beginning of the news are you mad at me no but i don't know what you want me to do it's probably just your radio well can you listen to the sound coming through the board right now is it the same sound you heard interrupt my show? Yeah, mostly, and they came through right on top of each other. Yeah, the show, all right. right, I've never heard that before. Yeah, me
1: neither. All right, so there you go. So uh, oh, we should say that Brian Slattery, no stranger to science fiction, uh, he writes it himself at times. Uh, so, um, so tell me about how you reacted.
2: Um. So I really enjoyed this movie. I, as a as a kid, I was one of those people who loved stories about like UFOs and Bigfoot and all of that stuff, and um, clearly somebody involved in this movie has the same, <laughs> as the same you know interest somewhere in their background that. The, but the thing that was kind of fun about it was that for all of the kind of – there's a lot of period signaling going on, you know, like between the framing thing, sort of making it into a Twilight – the Twilight Zone episode. Um, and then everybody's wearing these, like, you know, delicious vintage glasses and all of that kind of stuff. But then there's uh, – I, I liked that it was sort of updated also. Like the people talk more like they talk in, um like, Amy Sherman Palladino's shows, like Gilmore Girls and – And uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like the like the like the dialogue is very sort of like rat-a-tat-tat, but not in the '40s way, like in this in the same kind of the same kind of way that it's written now. Like there's something wonderfully updated about it. And then I kind of really liked these periods of time where probably like leaning into their low budgetness, they did some really cool things. Like if someone had a really long monologue, they would do these really long takes of them just talking. And some, if the person was talking on the phone, they would even like get rid of the image so that you were just staring at a blank screen and listening to this person's voice. And then that combined with the director's love of dolly shots, where they zoom around the town as the characters are zooming around the town, um, made it sort of just like moment to moment, like very visually and orally interesting to watch. Um, there's, there's, the movie also gets at what to me is kind of a nagging thing for those of us who loved these kinds of UFO stories as children. And then as adults, we come to see the place that they occupy in the political sphere. And now that you can trace the lineage from ufology to pretty directly to the kind of like, like lunatic fringe conspiracy theory stuff that has become... I sadly very much part of our mainstream politics. It's hard to know exactly what to do with these stories now. And I, I, I partially suspect that the filmmakers themselves kind of struggled with this. Like, like maybe the reason why they signaled so hard that it was the fifties is because they wanted to say, look, this is a story about the fifties. <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's not a story about now, but yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're playing with some like very potent things. And I, I'm not, I haven't quite sorted out how that all shakes out.
1: Yeah, I I just want to just jump in and say one thing, which is I do think that although it's intensely nostalgic and period, it's kind of. Like, nobody, I think, in the 1950s had goggle-type glasses, frames of the kind that Faye yes. uh, is wearing all the way through. Yeah. The, the period right. music that's being played on the radio station is, in fact, not music from the period. It is contemporarily composed music uh, that For sounds sure. uh, like the period as, as much as possible. Uh, Mrs. McNichol figured out that uh, they're using cassettes. Actually, it's Jonathan's mom who figured this out Uh, and there there are no cassettes actually during that time period there and and mercy that plus the framing device that we might be watching something on on a TV program from that era called Paradox Theater. Very much obviously the Twilight Zone. I'm just sort of wondering, maybe we're supposed to have a slightly different relationship to this than just pure nostalgia. Yeah, I mean,
0: what it it, ties it. tugs on your heartstrings as a, as a viewer of, you know, the Twilight Zone or the X-Files or, um, you know, even, um, the outer limits. Um, but I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think that what it, I think what it does really well that took maybe, you know, 18, 18, um, film festivals of rejection for people to finally see that this was probably something good was that it tells this, the entire film the 90 minutes that we're sitting there is captured captures a single night right and it, it takes place the night that apparently everyone in the town is at this basketball game and is it
2: possible that it's even like in real time like it's like it's 90 minutes that are showing 90 minutes
0: uh, yeah that, and that's what <laughs> like, i found really interesting I was it like, feels that way one yeah absolutely and you know you're you're following these characters what in what feels like a real time um, portrayal of their lives, um, and you know it's a jam packed ninety minutes where they discover UFOs. Right, they go from <laughs> having what seems like a mundane conversation of you know prepping for um, the radio show before the basketball game, through to discovering UFOs. And there's something really I mean a storyline that has that. That Michael Bay style range, right, feels really good to the viewer, and I think that while I was watching, there were moments that commanded my attention. I think um, Brian, you spoke of that of some of them, right, where the 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 video goes out altogether, and it's a you know you're getting a really long monologue, and the video's out, and if you're texting, if you're tweeting in the middle of it, and you get this, you might miss it in some places, but. If you glance up for a second and you realize that the screen is black and, and right, it, it's scored beautifully, it's scored in a way that feels like it's paired with yeah. the Ken Burns effect, but you're not seeing anything, right? For sure. It, it's really compelling to, to watch, um, and, 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 uh, even as you're not watching anything
2: happen on the screen. And actually, like g- going back to the first the first part of the show, we were talking about how it's hard to make a story about loose ends and like tattered fragments of things. This is a really good movie about that. You know, it's about people getting a hold of a story that they they are not going to be able to get to the end of, <laughs> you know, and they right. only have 90 minutes to do it. You know,
1: I, I will say, first of all, that there is it's a movie that's very fond of all, all kinds of culture and there are. Huge numbers of cultural references in there that can be mined out. He does work for W O T W War of the Worlds, and the the movie does combine that one night in the life of a small town quality of George Lucas's American Graffiti with mm. with Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters, looking around in, in in open spaces. Another movie that I I thought about. And you too might know it because it was shot in and around New Haven is a movie called Another Earth, uh, which is also a fairly low budget movie aimed at film festivals that kind of acquired a, a larger following. I, I do think as somebody who likes to go to mo- to to uh, film festivals and, and I'll even go, my son and I have gone just we were on vacation in Sedona one time and there was a film festival and we decided we'd just go and buy tickets and we could. And you see these movies that you just, that, you know, they're not big budget movies and they're movies where all kinds of choices about place uh, are made that are eccentric, but also very vivid and, inten- and intense and committed. And... Um, I mean, there's, you know, to your point, Brian, about the, the cinematography. There's a scene which is just Fay at her switchboard, the old plug-in style switchboard. I don't know totally. how long. I don't know how long that shot goes for, but I don't. It's long. Want, yeah, but you don't want it interrupted. You want to stay right there on her face and on that totally agree. Switchboard, yeah. Um. So anyway, well, it's, the movie is called The Vast of Night. We we all seem to like it, right? That's a fair uh, statement, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can rent it on Amazon Prime. And I, I'm even encouraging people to: you should have like a film festival in your house, you know, and just <laughs> show movies that were made for less than what's what would be a good figure, Mercy? Less than two million dollars? Um,
0: yeah, let's do less than two million. Give it a range, right? Get, someone, um, get some new folks in there yeah
1: Right, at least and a it, couple of effects
2: shots are possible yeah
1: yeah so you know like you can watch bottle rocket but you can't watch any other wes anderson movie it's that kind There's of thing another piece
2: of this movie, like I, you know i let it
0: let it be films that were rejected from a certain number of other film festivals right. before it finally got into Ooh.
2: You're
1: right So yeah. it now it now becomes very specifically the your name here, film festival, uh, and uh, yeah, and it should be actors that nobody's ever heard of, at least when this movie was released. Uh, the one thing you'll- I will
0: say about this, I, I mean, so at, at some point in I don't know my life, I decided, it part it's it's difficult for me to not to watch um, TV or to watch um, um, period movies that aren't interacting with with race in any degree, and I think I'm biased on that front. Not not everyone feels that way, obviously, but I love it when there's some little nugget to race. And the one nugget in this piece that that kind of gives a um, a hat tip to race a little bit is um, the first person that we hear the perspective of what's going on on the radio, what that sound is that everyone's hearing. Um, yes. We get to, we, he pulls, he draws us into this story um, where he interacted with it first and then it is it is um, broadcasted on the show that the um, DJ is is doing during the basketball game. He gets disconnected, and then there's this mad dash to reconnect him. But you know, with the 50s and there's no caller ID, there's this one line. It's like, what? You can't just call him back. There's that one line, hmm. and then he does call back. The caller calls back, and um, uh, the, the the operator patches him through, and the DJ is asking him, well, you know, how, why, why isn't anyone believing you about this story? And the speaker says, because I'm black. And Mm -hmm. it was just the one line in this movie. And I was just like, wow, I really, I really like that. Just some kind of conversation about race in the the moment of your period series.
1: All right. So we have to stop there. So we'll have time to make some recommendations on the other side. The the movie is The Vast of Night. You can rent it and uh, you can just watch it at no extra charge. I believe if you have Amazon Prime, guarantee of Amazon Prime is the next proposed amendment to the US Constitution uh, where everybody will basically just have it we don't we're not there yet but Bezos is working on it all right we'll be back it with you, you're it didn't know I didn't even ask you. Back suspicious all through the night kept it on you All right, here we are. We are back with Brian Slattery and Mercy Quay. Uh, i got to thank Cat Pastor, who's there in the studios uh, of WNPR and Connecticut Public, uh, making it possible for the rest of us to work from home, which is what we're doing. I'm at home uh, with my assistant producer, Declan the Dog. Uh, and uh, in his home is Jonathan McNichol, the producer of The Nose and the producer, therefore, of this episode of The Nose. So what we do at the end of The Nose every time is make uh, some recommendations uh, for you or to you. Uh, Mercies are inevitably astrophysics and aerospace related we'll see if the pattern holds mercy why don't you kick us off here.
0: Oh absolutely the pattern holds and I'm actually surprised I haven't run out of content yet. Um, Netflix just released. A, a series. Um, there's about ten episodes, and you will love it. It's called Space Force. Um, it is. It's created by Steve Carell and Greg Daniels. It stars Steve Carell as um, the newly appoint, the newly starred four star star general. Um, he he enters um, the fourth the Joint Chiefs meeting and is thinking he's going to take over his old boss's position, played by um, Noah Emmerich. And um, with at the at the Air Force. But instead of taking that uh, position, he has been appointed the Space Force. And this is a complete mockery of of Donald Trump's um, creation of the Space Force. And there's a there's a bunch of familiar faces in it. Like I said, Steve Carell and Noah Emmerich. But then there's also Fred Willard, Ben Schwartz. There's Lisa Kudrow and John Malkovic. And it is um, a star studded cast. And it, uh, it, it talks about the early years of the Space Force and putting monkeys and dogs in space. And Steve Carell plays an absolute idiot who should not be heading up any arm of the government, let alone the arm of uh, you know our armed forces that sends people into space. Um, it is called Space Force. It's available right now on Netflix, and I recommend it for anyone.
1: All right, Space Force. Uh, and also, you've got to be excited about the fact that Mark Kelly is currently leading in the polls in Arizona in the US Senate race could have an astronaut back (laughs) in the u.s senate uh we've had them before uh all right so uh brian slattery what have you got for us
2: um if you like the kind of like quiet character driven science fiction that that um the vast of night is like there's another uh series on amazon prime called tales from the loop which is this it's an eight episode thing um and it's based, oddly enough, on paintings by a Swedish artist named—and I will definitely butcher this name—but Simon Stålenhag. But the the it's a sort of his paintings are very sort of like they're they're science fictiony and at the same time kind of surreal. And the 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 series manages to really capture the vibe of these paintings in a pretty extraordinary way, so that the the stories are like these interrelated stories about a town. That has like an experimental physics lab at the center of it, where all these kind of crazy things happen. But they happen sort of like slowly and quietly. And it's about people, like how they intersect with like people's lives and their own sort of personal, you know, ambitions and sorrows. And it's it's really a beautiful show. Um, it's probably not a show to watch if you are sleepy. Because it demands some attention and you know, asks you to you know, be pretty focused on what it's doing. But if you are in the right frame of mind for it, it can be like, uh, I found it to be really rewarding. It's, it's beautiful is a word that comes to mind often.
1: All right. So Tales from the Loop, Tales from the Loop. I've heard other good things about it from other people. So, yes. So uh, I didn't get a chance to recommend this last week. This uh, the movie Robot and Frank with Frank Langella and uh, and actually just kind of a terrific cast, including Liv Tyler, who almost inevitably annoys me. But not in this maybe because she's supposed to be really annoying. Uh, I didn't particularly want to watch this movie. It's, you know, sometimes you sort of are compromising in your household. You want to watch kind of a hard boiled detective movie forgive me. Uh, and uh, maybe the other person wants to watch something that's a little bit about more about human relationships. So we got together over this movie and it really kind of does, in a very quiet uh, way, satisfy what all of what each of us wanted. Uh, and uh, there's a terrific performance by Langella. There's a couple of really interesting turns, too, in the movie. So, um, you know, if you're having one of those little discussions in your household where you can't quite settle both on the same movie, uh, try Robot in Frank, it might work out for you. And it, like um, uh, The Vast of Night, is available on Amazon Prime. I was trying to find out, apropos of astronauts, well, actually, Jonathan McNichol has been trying to find out whether the right stuff is streamable anywhere. To me, still the best movie just purely about astronauts uh, that I've ever seen. Uh, and apparently you have to rent it, because I was trying to tell my son all about it, too. Speaking of things that are streamable um, and, and, and flawed... So, uh, Netflix, I believe, has just put West Side Story uh, back out on the stream. So West Side Story has two problems. Unfortunately, they are the two leads. There are problems with Natalie Wood and there are real problems with Richard Boehmer. Nonetheless, if you've never seen it or you haven't seen it in 10 years, I mean, for the Jerome Robbins choreography alone, for the music alone, for some of the other performances, which are, in fact, just stellar uh, for the fact that it still, you know, by, until Hamilton came along, it really was. The, the single greatest departure in the history of American musicals, um, I, would, I would recommend West Side Story. Uh, and as I say, I believe Netflix now has it, or they're going to have it at some point during June. I think they've got, they've got it already. All right, it's time for us to go. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks very much to Brian Slattery and Mercy Quay for joining me today. We'll be back on Monday with uh, some updates on both science and the news of the crisis that we're in. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact, oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.